Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Jim Thompson, PCA founder and CEO. I'm excited to welcome to PCA's one-on-one podcast, Brad Osmus. Brad manages the Detroit Tigers and is a PCA National Advisory Board member. Before his managerial career, Brad managed the Israeli national baseball team and, of course, played 18 years in the major leagues with the Padres, Tigers, Astros, and Dodgers. He was an all-star in 1999, three-time Gold Glove Award winner, and became known as one of the best defensive catchers and best handlers of pitchers in baseball. In his first season as the Tigers manager in 2014, he led the team to the American League Central Division Championship. So Brad was not drafted until the 47th round of the 1987 draft. He played in the major leagues longer than any of the 1,150 players drafted ahead of him. Brad, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. So Brad, uh, PCA is about creating what we call a development zone culture in which the goal is to develop develop better athletes, better people. And one of our key values is what we call honoring the game, the roots of honoring the game, respect for the rules, your opponents, officials, teammates, and yourself. John Holmeyer, a former PCA National Board member and one of your Dartmouth College classmates uh, who introduced you to PCA, says the values of PCA are in your DNA. How did your living out these values as you you know, competed at a very high level in baseball come about? Well, I think they're instilled in you, and they were instilled in me by uh, different people uh, as I matured and, and grew into a professional athlete. I, certainly my parents had a role in that. Uh, I could point to my high school basketball coach who really drove home the idea of respecting the game, respecting the people around you, respecting the, the team you're going up against, uh, respecting your teammates, um, and that just carried through. Uh, that idea of respecting everything in your environment carried through and still is, is part of uh, part of me today as a, as a manager. What was the name of your high school basketball coach? He was Coach Nick Carparelli. Yeah, I, um, whenever people um, have an, uh, a coach who's had like an impact, I like to get their name out there. Um, what was tell tell me more about the role your parents played in your youth sports experience? You know we hear horrible stories about parents, um, you know, just on their kids. The, what we call the the dreaded PGA, the post game analysis in the car on the way home. I have a sense your your parents were not like that. No, my parents were not like that at all. My in fact, my dad was not an athlete growing up uh, in any sense of the word. He was he was more of a bookworm. He went to college, went on to get his PhD in philosophy. Uh, and was a, a professor at Southern Connecticut State University for years. Um, so other than playing catch in the backyard with me once in a while, he wasn't overly involved in the uh, athletic side of my life. Um, my mom grew up a, a Boston Brave, Boston Red Sox fan, and, and her father, my grandfather, was a big Red Sox fan. So I grew up a Red Sox fan, and, and really it was my mom who – uh, did all the driving, dropped me off at practice, and, and even was the first person to put me into an open tryout with professional scouts that uh, that got me noticed. Um, did did they? Um, you, you say these, these values were instilled in you. Did they talk to you about um, being a good sport? What we call honoring the game. 
Well, yeah, they, they didn't necessarily always have to just talk to me either. Sometimes their actions showed me. Uh, you know, my parents were very big, especially because my dad was a professor on grade, so working hard at school was the primary focus uh, in sports. Uh, they knew I enjoyed sports, so they encouraged me, but they, they really, there was, like you said, there was no post-game analysis. They didn't know enough about sports to, to analyze uh, what I was doing, but I can't remember one time I got into an argument with an umpire as a 13-year-old, which really, you can't be doing that as a 13-year-old. And Major League Baseball, it's a different story, but when you're 13, you shouldn't be arguing with an adult umpire or any umpire at all. And my mom was so angry and so embarrassed that when the game was over, she left. And I was at 13 year old, 13 years old looking for my ride home, and it was nowhere to be found, and uh, had to walk home. So I learned quickly that you respect the people around you, including the officials, uh, or I'll be walking home. <laughs> what a great uh, your uh, your dad. Um, I understand he's written some books, and including what may be your favorite book. Is that true? Well, I I said that a little bit in in jest because it's my dad's books are not light reading. Um, they're, <laughs> you know, they're the types of books that you read a paragraph and then you reread it and then you reread it again. Uh, it's uh, it's not like uh, reading a romance novel. I, I think I'm not even sure I'm going to pr- pronounce these words right, but I think you, in one interview you said that his your favorite book was the one he wrote called "A Schopenhauerian Critique of Nietzsche's Thought." You, you pronounce it right, and I did read it, um, but again, it was a little bit in jest. It's just it's uh, all of his books, and I've, I've read them all. Uh, they're uh, they're very thought provoking, and like I said, you 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 don't. This isn't something that you you read casually on an airplane and then flip into your used book pile. Um, this is something that you'd have to reread multiple t- reread pages and, and excerpts multiple times to kind of grasp the meaning behind it. Any uh, any books that you've read uh, lately that have had a big impact on you that you really liked? No, I mean, quite frankly, when I read, it's it's more for entertainment. Uh, I don't, I, I do bounce around all over the map in terms of what I read. I mean, I'll read, I read, a, I'll read a science fiction type novel, and then in, uh, I may read The Great Train Robbery. Um, you know, I, and even at times I'll read nonfiction, uh, John Adams autobiography, or not autobiography, but John Adams biography, um, some historical books. I, I just Whatever kind of grasps my grabs my eye or can grasp my attention is uh, I'll read. Yeah, you know, uh, being a catcher uh, just requires so much thinking. Um, you know, score, game situation, et cetera. And this is a quote you gave in a different interview. Um, I'm thinking, what's the score? What inning are we in? How many outs? What's this hitter's weakness? What's this pitcher's strengths? Who's on deck? Who could pinch hit? Who's up after the hitter on deck? And you kind of go through all these things in an instant, and then you make a decision and put down the next signal. And I want to contrast that with uh, Ted Sizer, who was the dean of the Ed School at Harvard and at Brown, once said, um, show me a quarterback who thinks, and I'll show you, show you a losing team. How do you reconcile those two statements? Is Sizer wrong? Well, you know, there's... When I say you, you go through this checklist as a catcher, <clears throat> the ironic part is the older you become and the more experienced you are, the more reflexive this becomes, uh, all these decisions become. You don't actually have to ponder each individual item. It becomes more of a reflex. You know automatically what each one of those are, what the answer to each one of those questions are. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't know. 
I've never, I'm not a quarterback. I'm a catcher, and uh, you know, a lot of times with the quarterback, they're getting the calls sent into them. Uh, I've never had pitches called for me, so the the manager and the pitcher are relying on me to know what's going on. Uh, but I wouldn't say it's you know it's a consternation where I'm I'm grinding over every particular question. You know, the longer you catch, the longer you're in the game, the easier it is for all this stuff to be analyzed instantaneously. In fact, I've always said it's kind of a cruel irony because when you get to the point where you really can understand. Uh, the importance uh, of what a catcher does behind the plate and the importance of these decisions, that's about the same time that your physical s- skills start to go backwards. Your arm strength goes down, your bat speed goes down, you don't run as well. That's so kind of a cruel irony. Yeah. Um, th- let's talk about pitchers a little bit. Um, are pitchers different from other players? Do they have different psyches? Do you have to deal with them differently than your other teammates? A lot of them do. You know, it is different for a pitcher. A pitcher in a baseball game, when he's standing on that mound, the spotlight is bright white and hot on him. You know, as he goes is basically how the team's going to go on many, many nights and or many innings if he's a reliever. Um, so I think that builds a different type of personality. And a lot of times they have different expectations. Uh, pitchers also don't, they're not playing as frequently as an everyday player does. So, so they they learn to deal with the physical and mental demands of playing sporadically, um, and that creates a little bit of a different mindset and uh, uh, psychology. So we, I think there there is a little bit of difference. That doesn't mean that they're they're out in you know excuse the pun. It doesn't mean like they're out way out in left field, um, but it does kind of create a, it can create a different personality. You know, uh, Bruce Bochy once uh, he gave a talk at one of our events, and he said that uh, talking about how long a season is, how many games, and there's just you're just not going to avoid losing streaks. And he said the key to resilience over the course of a long season was was positivity. And how important is we, we actually talked to youth coaches about getting the best out of kids through the use of relentless positivity. How how important is positivity in your dealing with a pitcher? Well, I think it's. I just think in in baseball in general, you have to be positive. There's a lot of negativity that happens in baseball, um, uh, and in dealing with a pitcher specifically, uh, I'll give you an example. If if we're in a the most dire situation for a pitcher would be having no outs and the winning run on third base in the in the the ninth inning. Uh, and for me, if I go to talk to the pitcher. When I leave the mound, regardless of how dire that situation is, I want him to feel like he's got a chance to get out of it. Uh, so that's the idea of being positive. Now, is it always going to work? No. But if he feels like he's got a chance, then the odds of him being successful in getting out of that dire situation increase. Yeah, I read a piece about the, uh, Pete Carroll and the, the Seahawks before the Super Bowl, and um, one of the things that they really focus on is the idea that something good is right around the corner, no matter how bad things are now, something good is going to happen. It sounds similar. Well, I'll tell you what, baseball taught me as a player, especially as a hitter, and this this is different from pitching, but as a hitter, um, you have to have a short memory. You kind of, It's what I call constantly looking forward. You can't, if you're, wor- if you're worried or thinking about the last pitch or the last at-bat or the last inning, because there's so much failure, if you keep concerning yourself with what's already ha- has happened, then that's going to affect what's coming. And 
So that's why I say when something happens, when that pitch goes by and maybe it was a bad call or when that at-bat goes by and maybe you struck out, you put it behind you and you're constantly looking forward to the next pitch, the next at-bat, the next inning, the next game. Um, I think it's much easier to be positive if you do it in that light rather than focusing on how many times you've failed in the rearview mirror. It's hard to do, though, um, having a short memory. We, we we talk with coaches about a mistake ritual, like flushing mistakes or wiping it off, and and uh, having actually a physical gesture for players so they can they can have that short memory. But it's hard to do, especially when the game feels like it means so much. It can. It can be much harder for a young person than it would be for a professional baseball player. I think baseball players at that point have thousands of innings or thousands of at-bats. Uh, and they've trained themselves uh, to continue to look forward to the next thing. How did um, how did being a catcher help you, or did it help you become a manager? I think certainly in, the one thing that you have as a catcher, or the one aspect of catching that I think lends itself to managing, is you're dealing with a pitching staff on a regular basis. Uh, so you kind of understand their psychology. Uh, you talk to them, you work with them, you speak with them, uh, and pitching is a big part of baseball. I think also as a catcher, though, you, you understand the rigors of playing on an everyday basis, the aches and pains you deal with, uh, the the playing late into the night and then having to wake up early and play a day game the next day, um, the, the, uh, the the amount of failure you you deal with as a hitter, you know, 70% of the time even the good hitters fail. So I think it lends itself on both sides. You, you understand the pitching a little, a little bit better, you understand the the position player side, the grind of playing every day a little bit better. Uh, and you're also involved in the strategy. There's a lot of tactical, tactical maneuvers that catchers uh, mentally have to prepare for, and uh, that lends itself to the, the strategy of managing a club. How, do you, how did you prepare yourself? How did you put yourself in position to to get um, the managerial position with the Tigers? You had never managed, at, I don't think at any level. You were a special assistant, I believe, to the, was it the president of the Padres? Um, how, did, how did that come about that um, obviously you were a very effective, smart player, but I'm just curious, um, how did you position yourself to be ready for that? Well, I didn't actively seek any managerial job. You know, uh, fortunately for me, I had a number of teams who called me and interviewed me uh, for vacant positions. So uh, it, it, it wasn't anything I was doing on my own. I think uh, I, I was fortunate in the sense that my reputation was one that people thought I could transition into a managerial position. I think that's why I ended up getting those interviews and uh, ultimately getting the job in Detroit. Anything um, surprise you about being a manager um, in your first year? No, nothing Nothing has shocked me. Uh, nothing did shock me in the first year. I've, I've been through it. Playing 18 years and being a catcher, you, you see quite a bit of what can happen during the course of Major League season. Uh, there's obviously some responsibilities as a, a manager you don't have as a player. Uh, as a manager, you're responsible for the entire team. As a catcher, uh, I was responsible really for myself and the pitching staff. Um, but I, I, I did, as a catcher, have to look past just myself. I did have the pitching staff to deal with. A lot of other position players only concerned themselves with, with them. Uh, so there wasn't anything that shocked me, and 
you know, I think part of that is because when you go through 18 major league seasons, uh, you find that anything can happen in a baseball season, so you, it becomes difficult to be shocked by something. Do you think the game has changed much over the last 20 years since you started playing until now? Well, I think so. I think there's a lot more injuries, and I, I think that's a lot of times related to the amount of money that's spent on player salaries. Both teams and players don't want to risk career-ending injuries, um, so they're much more cautious in the medical field when it comes to to baseball, you know, teams don't want to lose their investment for extended period periods, so they're, they're going to be cautious. Players don't want to have career-ending injuries or or play at less than 100% because it can cost them their livelihood, uh, uh, at the very least, some some contract dollars. So, I do think that has changed. I think it it probably started to change a little bit when I came up, and it's it's continued on that trend. You know, the money in sports is is um, all all over. I mean, it even filters down, I think, to youth sports with travel teams and stuff. What I've noticed recently is uh, more and more successful teams using terms that would have seemed kind of uh, cheesy, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago about, you know, love and we're, we're a family and, uh, you know, playing for each other. Um, it must. I see how that kind of a feeling of, you know, I really care about my teammates and um, the, you know, our coach really cares about us, et cetera. It seems like I see how that could lead to a team doing really well. Um, it seems like it's hard to do that when, um, you know, it's, it's a business. And you, how do you commit yourself to a player to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to make you successful, make this team successful, when that player knows that he could be gone, he could be traded, he could be cut, his season could be over like that. How, how do you get that team team spirit given the, the business aspect of baseball? Well, I mean, first of all, you, you're right in the sense that it is kind of a family atmosphere. These are – 25 to 35 guys that will be together or be together for the vast majority of the next uh, eight months. So uh, it is, you know, and like any family, there's guys that most guys get along and occasionally they, they don't get along. Um, but in terms of dealing with it for me and trying to create the atmosphere where they want to win, uh, really there's the, one, you got to be honest. I mean, to me, you got to you got to be honest with the players. Sometimes you got to give them bad news, but if you if you're honest with them, they'll at least respect the fact that you told them the truth. I mean, you can't candy coat it or use a little white lie just so you don't get make them angry. You, you really, for me, you got to be honest. Uh, that's that's extremely important. And then the other thing is, they have to know that you have the best interest of the team at heart. As much as you want them to do well, that never supersedes what's best for the team. Yep. Yeah, um, we're talking earlier about um, you know the short memory and that mental discipline. Um, the when you when you were catching, um, you know obviously you need to protect your throwing hand, and um, you kept it against your thigh, I believe, so it was ready. But you still got hit there occasionally. And uh, here's here's what you said about that. You said, I found that if you keep your hand relaxed, there's usually no damage, even if you get hit. Um, you know, I think so much of what's valuable for kids in sports, whether they go on to play in high school or college or professional or not, is learning the mental discipline. How do you, and, and, and maybe you answered earlier, you said it's just over time you get used to it, but 
it seems to me it takes a lot of mental discipline to keep your hand relaxed when you know any second it could get hit. With the, but the vast majority of the time it doesn't get hit. It actually is a rare occurrence that, that it got hit. And over the course of, you know, 18 years that I played, it probably got hit about a dozen times. And we're talking thousands of games and tens of thousands of innings. Um, so it doesn't really happen very often. Uh, only one of those times that I got hit that I missed any time. I missed a couple days. Um, but I've just found that if you left it there and it was relaxed, it always seemed to be fine. Now, uh, that doesn't mean something could happen. I don't know if I would recommend to a kid to put his hand there if he was nervous about it. Um, but if you if you put it there and you keep a tight fist, I found that the players that keep a tight fist are much more apt to have damage to their hand if the ball does hit it. Yep. You mentioned earlier the impact your high school basketball coach had on you. What what sports did you play as a youth and in high school? I played basketball, soccer, and baseball when I was really young, and then I, I just played basketball and baseball once I got to high school. There's so much pressure on kids now. You know, we do hundreds of I think we did like 1,600 live workshops around the country last year for parents and coaches and athletes. And every time I speak to parents, um, there's at least one and often many people say, you know, my son, daughter has some ability and they're getting a lot of pressure to she should be playing soccer all year round. He should be playing baseball all year round. Um, you know, we, we're, we're really opposed to early specialization. Uh, but then there's a the question of what's early. Do you feel like playing basketball and soccer helped you in baseball? Absolutely. I think they should play all the sports they can and until maybe they get to their, their sophomore or junior year. If they're really excelling at one, maybe focus more on that individual sport. But I, for me, this year-round single sport training has gone too far. I think uh, in baseball we're seeing the, res- the we're seeing at the major league level Tommy John surgeries as a result of of young boys who have played baseball year round since they were 11, 12 years old. Um and I think it's a mistake. I think playing other sports makes you a better athlete. Uh, and in the long run, if you're that good at baseball, it's going to make you a better baseball player. So I, you know, I think the the whole travel team idea. I'm not sure when it started. I think it started probably about the time I got out of high school. So I didn't. I wasn't too closely involved. But I think it's. Uh, I think it's it's gone too far and it's become a detriment. What do you say to a parent who says, um, "My son's coach says unless he specializes in this sport, he's probably not going to make his high school team." Well, I mean, every individual person is going to have to make that decision. But first of all, the kid should be asked if he wants to put that much time in and is being on the high school team that important or does he have other interests or does schoolwork become the focus? Um, But I wouldn't put, you know, there's so many parents who think their kids are going to get scholarships and or sign professional contracts. Um, And the odds are so slim that any of this is going to happen, especially signing a professional contract. And even if they sign a professional contract, the odds of making the major leagues and having any type of extended career go even farther down exponentially. So I think you have to be realistic about it. If they enjoy it and they want to play it, fine. Um, But you have to be smart about it. Keith Van Horn, who um, played uh, in the NBA for many years, now has a – 
really fantastic uh, youth basketball program in Colorado. He wrote a piece called the Deluded Parent Syndrome. The you know, parents who, you know, they got a seven or eight year old and they're sure that kid's gonna <laughs> gonna get a scholarship, gonna be a pro. Yeah, I'm, I'm with I'm with Keith on that. It just it just happens so rarely, and it doesn't mean you can't encourage them. But if, I've also seen the other side of the the spectrum where kids at the age of 11 they start playing travel ball year round, and they're good players. But by the time they're sophomores in high school, they're burnt out. They've played so much they just don't enjoy the sport anymore. And I think often waiting on these travel ball teams, waiting till they're a little bit older. They don't. They don't get that burnout syndrome. They they end up enjoying the sport, and uh, I just think there's a. You know, I understand that with especially at the high school level, the travel ball teams allow college coaches to go to one tournament and watch a bunch of players, and it's a good recruiting tool for college coaches. Uh, but I also think it it really taps the summer vacation in baseball or softball. It taps the summer vacation time that families can have together because they're constantly practicing and going to tournaments. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you're like me. I just remember fantastic uh, summer days and summer weeks of uh, not really doing much, but <laughs> but feeling great about it, as opposed to working hard at a at a sport. Um, you you manage the Israeli national team. Um, I, I have to think that the quality of ball player there, both their knowledge and their physical talent was quite a bit below what you're used to in the major leagues. What was that like, managing that team? Well, you know, I did go over there and watch some of the kids play baseball in Israel. But the the, the national team or the, the, the Israeli team, the WBC Israeli team, was comprised of American minor league players with Jewish heritage. So it, it was you know, A-ball, double-A, triple-A players. It wasn't – we only had uh, three – native Israelis on the team, one of whom uh, is a pitcher at San Diego State. Uh, another one had played college over here 10 years ago. And then there was a third one from Israel who played on their national team. So, uh, But the vast majority of the team were Americans. Got it. Okay. Um, let me ask you about framing pitches. Um, you know, there's a, a big – I'm on the, the board of a nonprofit called the Institute for Sports Law and Ethics, and the issue of what's legitimate gamesmanship and what's, you know, crossing the line into something unethical, um, boy, there's just – in a lot of places there just aren't uh, clear lines there. So a pitcher framing a pitch to try to convince a, a um an umpire that it was really a strike. What's your philosophy on that, both at the major league level and if there's any difference for youth, youth and high school catchers? Well, I think this, you know, this is kind of a blossoming area, and uh, I don't think it's a. I think part of the catcher's job is to make the pitch look like a strike, and there are certain catchers who are better at it than others. Um, and really, at its core, it's it's very valuable because one pitch can change a game. And if you have a guy who's getting multiple pitches called strikes over the course of a game, uh, that can really impact the outcome of a major league season when you're talking about 162 games. So I don't I don't think it's crossing a line in terms of, terms of ethics. I think that's part of the catcher's job. Interesting, yeah. We're, we're being on what we call mental models, the double goal coach. First goal is winning. Second, more important goal, life lessons. And we've boiled that down to better athletes, better people. 
for athletes, we want them to be what we call triple impact competitors. Make yourself better, your teammates better, and the game better. Um, and I think you were you were known as somebody who made not just the pitchers that you played with, but everybody on the team better. Uh, anybody stand out to you in your major league career um, as a player, maybe now with the Tigers, who is the kind of player that makes teammates better? Well, yeah, Jeff Bagwell was like that. He played the game the right way. He was an excellent talent, obviously, um, and he was a team player, understanding that even though he was one of the stars on the team, the team was more important and winning was more important. Any advice for high school baseball players who um, you know, want to go on to play in college and ultimately the pros? Well, make sure you're, first of all, enjoying the game. Uh, and the other thing I would I would caution players at that age is because there's so much training and, and specialized coaching, don't get too mechanical with everything, whether it's your pitching or your or your hitting. Don't get overly, mecha- overly mechanical. Once you step into the batter's box or on the pitcher's rubber, just be an athlete and try and throw the strike or throw the pitch where you want it or, or take a good swing. Make sure you see the pitch. Don't don't start analyzing your swing uh, as the pitch is on the way because you're not going to be nearly as, as successful a hitter. Cool. Any advice for parents? Yeah, let them play. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure they're make sure they're uh, they're having fun. I, I certainly wouldn't force them to ever play if they're not having fun, even if they're even if they're very talented. Because unfortunately, it'll it'll go the wrong in the wrong direction at some point. Um, yeah, it seems like the enjoyment of the game is sort of the fuel that causes people to to get better. And all this focus on on travel teams, early specialization, you know, elite training at an early age. Uh, can really undercut, as you're saying, undercut that enjoyment. And if you're not enjoying it, even though you know how to to turn the double play, um, you know, you're probably not going to last. You don't want, as a parent, to make your child's sport his job. Yeah, it's, exactly. Um, Brad, this has been fantastic. Um, I, I want to thank you for being involved with Positive Coaching Alliance. And you know, why did you get involved with PCA? Why, why are you... Why do you support us? Well, because I was a before I managed at the major league level and before I managed the Israeli team, I was my daughter's softball coach. So I, I uh, it was something I really enjoyed because you're you're taking you know young girls at the age of twelve, eleven, and twelve, uh, and you want them to feel good about. You want them to win, but not at the expense of feeling good about themselves. And sometimes I think that gets lost. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your support, and go Tigers. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One-on-One. Be sure to visit positivecoach.org to download more podcasts.